We're in Lesson 15 of Spiritual Gifts, and I've titled this, What Every Christian Needs to Know About Spiritual Gifts. Now, I'm not going to tell you everything that I think you need to know. I've chosen to focus on those things that are either matters of misunderstanding or perhaps things that are not emphasized enough or those things which are very crucial to uh, spiritual gifts. We are on the... the uh, edge of a new year, and so in some churches you would be expecting to hear a New Year's message. And I don't work to do that, uh, but actually there will be something, I think, to be said. As I was just thinking about the new year that is approaching, it occurred to me that, that somehow, in fact, my friend Ramesh Richard tells me that New Year is the most universally... Uh, uh, celebrated holiday globally, and that's why they have in the past had these global telecasts that they have uh, done for the past uh, eight, seven years. And uh, so I was wondering, why is it that New Year is so uh, appealing to people? And I thought about the Athenians, remember where they, uh, as you can see in that text in Acts 17, where the, uh, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there used to spend their time in nothing else than telling or listening to something new. I think there is the, the sense that if there is something new, then there is something improved, or at least the opportunity for improvement. But uh, And certainly that's what the toothpaste people tell you, <laughs> or the shaving cream folks. It's always new and it's always improved and you're supposed to feel better about the fact that it's new. But Ecclesiastes sort of puts us back down on solid earth when it basically tells us that nothing men do is new. Nothing that takes place on this earth apart from God is new. It's just the same old story rerun with maybe some variations. And so he says, there is nothing truly new on earth. And I would suggest to you that it is only God that can do something new. And that's part of what we want to talk about at the end of this lesson. Because spiritual gifts is a part of God's program that is new and it is improved over the old and it, is, uh, it includes the exercise of spiritual gifts within the church, the body of Christ. So let's talk about some of those principles that are crucial to us in our discovery of our spiritual gifts, the development of those, and the deployment or the use of those gifts. I don't like A, B, and C for this. I wish I could say 1, 2, and 3, but that's the way my outline came out, and so A... Spiritual gifts are God's supernatural enablement to empower Christians for service. I don't think anybody really would dispute that fact, but I've been trying to think through the implications of that. And it seems to me that most Christians have a kind of Samson mentality when it comes to spiritual gifts. In other words, that it's our strengths that somehow God soups up, sort of puts a turbocharge on it, or he gives us steroids for our strengths, and therefore we are, we are better at what we are good at, and that God uses that for his glory. I'm not saying that God cannot and or does not use our strengths. I'm suggesting to you that it's not the right frame of mind. 
As I look through scriptures, I do not see that as the emphasis. In fact, the, the more I look at it, the more I see that it is God working in spite of or through our weaknesses. Here's the irony. I've told you before that uh, often God has a way of uh, preparing me in some way for the message that uh, I was going to, uh, to bring today. And so, in effect, one of my major points is that God uses His strengths in our weakness. And I'm probably as weak today as I've ever been when I've preached. Last Sunday, I was not here. I was at the doctor's office. And, uh, and I felt lousy. And uh, they uh, took an x-ray or two and, and whatever and basically said, oh, you're not all that bad. And they sent me on my way with a mild antibiotic. But the end of this week, I got a call back from that doctor's office, and they said, um, our radiologist took another look. And I, you know, I probably had pneumonia, or have. And, and so all of a sudden, now I understand at least why I feel so absolutely lousy. And yet, isn't that perfect? It, it, isn't it perfect, you know, to know that whatever God does, it isn't going to be because I feel that great, or because I yell a little louder, or I move a little faster. It's because of his word. God works through our weaknesses. Spiritual gifts are God's provision for people who are weak and incapable of doing things so that his work will be done. Now, think about that just in terms of the scriptures. Think about the work of the spirit in relationship to our salvation. It's very clear in Scripture, Romans chapter 3, for example, that we are incapable of fulfilling God's requirements. Or Ephesians chapter 2. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. So God doesn't come along with the Holy Spirit and jack us up a little bit and help us on our way. He doesn't take sick people and make them healthy. He takes dead people and makes them alive. And the scriptures tell us that that work is a work that is carried out through the Spirit. Look particularly at Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, for example, in that regard. Then you think about sanctification in the book of Romans. We are saved by the work of God through His Spirit in our lives... John chapter 3, Jesus talks to Nicodemus about the work of the Spirit and how that produces the new birth. And now in, in Romans we see that we are to live a life that is pleasing to God. And yet Paul says when he strives to do that, he finds it's impossible. He knows he's supposed to. He knows that he has died to sin and he has been raised to newness of life. But in him, that is, in his flesh, there is not the capacity to overcome sin. There is not the capacity to live righteously. And so he says, oh, wretched man, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, he speaks as a believer, but he speaks of the deadness of the flesh with respect to living the Christian life. And that's when he goes to the work of Christ on Calvary and then in chapter 8 to the work of of the Holy Spirit. And he says, that same Spirit which raised the dead body of Jesus to life is that Spirit which works in our dead bodies, dead with respect to our ability to please God, and he brings us to life so that, in fact, his will may be accomplished in us. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 
Paul talks about the Scriptures and about our human inability to comprehend the things of God. And so he says to us that he has given to us his Spirit so that the Spirit conveys to us those spiritual things, makes them come to life in our understanding and in our lives. It's probably just an extension of his work in our spiritual life, but look at his work in terms of prayer. Romans chapter 8 says that, that there are times when we simply cannot articulate what it is that we desire to communicate to God. And he says the Spirit is the one who comes along and who carries us along and conveys the deep things within our spirit to God so that our prayers may be effectively offered to Him. The work of the Spirit in service. And here's where I'm trying to say, when it comes to serving God, we are not just weak. (laughs) We are dead. We do not have the capacity to change other people's spiritual lives. We don't. We cannot. And so look at what Paul says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, he says, God has chosen the foolish things. God has chosen the weak things to confound the wise. Now, that's not very flattering, but what it's saying is God's way of carrying out his work is to work through those people who are weak, who in the eyes of the world are foolish. They're not the powerful people. They are the weak people, and he works through them to accomplish his purposes. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, with respect to himself, when I came to you, Corinthians, I did not come to you with, with powerful speech and all of the things that you've come to expect and delight in from those false teachers among you. He says, I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Paul is saying, I came to you with a simple proclamation of the truth of God with the absolute knowledge that I was incapable of bringing about that which only God could do and I'm trusting in God's Spirit. I trusted in Him to achieve what I could not do. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10, Paul says, We are weak, (laughs) we apostles. You, Corinthians, are strong. And yet God worked powerfully through them. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, Paul says, I will boast in what pertains to my weakness, not in what pertains to his perceived strength. And then you all know that text. And I think this is a critical text from Second Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. Remember, he describes... Uh, his being, or it appears to be him describing his being taken up into heaven and seeing uh, heavenly things. And then he says, in effect, but lest I would get too puffed up about all that, God worked in my body in some way. We don't really know exactly what it was, his thorn in the flesh, to humble him. And he said that he petitioned three times that that would be removed. And here is God's response, verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 12. My grace is enough for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So then I will boast most gladly about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may reside in me. 
Therefore, I'm content with weaknesses, with insults, with troubles, with persecutions and difficulties for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. Does that not give you just a little different feel for spiritual gifts? That God isn't going around looking for the most talented, uh, uh, powerful uh, people that he can find and just tweaking them a little bit to give them a little extra output. He has purpose to work through us. Those who are weak and foolish, those who are dead with respect to doing anything for God on our own, and he has chosen to work powerfully through his spirit so that spiritual gifts are the provision for weak people to do God's work. And you can see that that is the result that results in the glory of God. When God uses those who are weak and foolish, it brings glory to him. You don't see people taking bows who are weak. You see people taking bows who think they're strong. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, take a look at yourselves, folks, if you're getting too swell-headed about who you are and what you've done, and recognize that God has chosen the weak things, not the nobility and all of this, Not that he's saying not any, but not many of you would fit in that category. And so he says, no one can boast in his presence before God. Verse 29, we can't boast about what isn't ours. And he says, let the one who does boast, boast in the Lord. Verse 31. So God uses weakness to pour his strength through us so that he may receive the glory and that his work may be done. And I add there a fourth point. If we are to act out of our weakness, then does that not mean we are to act in faith? It's one thing when I think I'm good at something and I see something that needs to be done. You know what I'm saying? You sort of roll up your sleeve and say, I've done this before, and you just let me at it. It's another thing if you say to yourself, I'm not really, I'm not really competent To operate in this way, that means that you have to be operating out of faith. And that's why in Romans chapter 12, he talks about dealing with gifts according to the measure of faith that God has given to us. We should act in faith, trusting in his power rather than in self-confidence, which is only looking to ourselves. This is actually my second main point, but it's B in the outline. Since spiritual gifts are not a manifestation of our own human wisdom or strength, that is, they're they're not something that's done through the flesh, and they produce spiritual change in others, then our message and our methods must not appeal to the flesh. In other words, the work that we are called to do through the Spirit is not fleshly work. We don't do it in the flesh, and we don't do it to produce changes in the flesh of others. We are put to work to be used of God to bring about spiritual change. In some instances, radical new birth. In other instances, transformation as they grow in maturity in the Lord. That work is to take place, but it is not to take place through human fleshly methods. And Paul is very clear, as you you can see in those texts. He talks about we don't catch with bait. We don't, we don't use the sophisticated, slick methods which appeal to people's fleshly nature. If you want to talk about the false teachers and the false prophets 
then look at Second Peter. Their whole methodology is fleshly in its orientation and it's fleshly in its appeal. And no wonder people follow because they are following their own flesh. When you speak of spiritual things, then people are being, are being moved in the direction that their flesh hates. They are moved in the direction that Satan is resisting. And that's why it takes God's great spiritual power. Third, or C, spiritual gifts must be developed. I think one of the things that happens is that we tend to think that spiritual gifts just come to us sort of uh, like Adam and Eve. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't Adam and Eve, little babies, you know, and they grew up. It was Adam and Eve, whoof, there they are, adults. And, and we may think that spiritual gifts are that way, that when God gifts us, that he gifts us with our full-blown, fully developed uh, gifting, and I don't think that's true. Uh, and these texts, at least so far as I can tell, would help confirm that. Paul, when he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Verses 14 and 15 says, Do not neglect the spiritual gift that you have given to you and confirmed by prophetic words when the elders laid hands on you. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that everyone will see your progress. 2 Timothy 1.6 Because of this, I remind you to rekindle God's gift that you possess through the laying on of my hands. Now, what that suggests to me is that we may not know. For example, we we have one of the things that delights my heart is in our church, we don't just ask the the most accomplished, skilled musicians to have a part. We also delight in watching those who are growing, emerging uh, musicians. Would that not be true? Doesn't it delight you to see them come along? But but wouldn't you agree with me that at the in the early stages? One cannot always look and say, now this person is really going to excel at this. It's going to take time. It's going to take practice. That's the way it is. I I remember at Believer's Chapel years ago, and I suppose they were thinking mainly of me when they said it, but I can remember the elders saying, we believe that wherever there's fire, there's going to be a little smoke. And, And what they're saying is, you know, look, people, if they are going to develop in their spiritual gifts, then they're going to have to mature and it's not going to be the full-blown thing that you see. And that means that some of us are going to have to endure in the sense of not having that fineness. Some of us need to be called alongside to help. Some of us may be called along to say, you know what, I think maybe this isn't something you ought to be doing. I found that in mechanical work from time to time. There are people who just seem to have a knack for it and there are others where I want to say, don't ever try to fix anything again. Just, that's just not it. Just leave it alone. And, and we need to be saying that to others. But somehow you have to try your hand at it. And while our meeting of the church is not the original amateur hour, it is a place where, where, where young men can begin to develop and explore their gifts. And, and, and we can, I think, rejoice in that. Fourth or D... Spiritual gifting and ministry are more diversified than we tend to think. I think that's one of the things that I've seen as I've gone through this series is we we tend to think about things like teaching and exhortation and we've got these neat little kind of cubby holes that we fit this stuff into. And so we have this little uh, mailbox bin of gifts 
But the more I study the gifts, the more I see it's just not that uh, simplistic. First uh, Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, we've read many times. There are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different results or outgoings from those, but the same God who produces all of them in everyone. So if I understand spiritual gifts correctly, and every individual has a unique role to play in the body of Christ, then we're like snowflakes. Yes, we're all have, we have something in common. We're all flaky. But, but, but beside the flaky part, every snowflake has its own unique characteristics. There are none that are identical or fingerprints or whatever you want to say. Every one of you, every believer has a unique gifting, combination of gifts. And when you look at those verses in, in 1 Corinthians 12, not only a spiritual gift, but there is diversity in the ministry, that is, the way in which that gift is put to work. And thirdly, the results that come from that. One of the things that we talked about early on was that the exercise of one gift may actually produce something different than that gift. Teaching may produce, for instance, evangelism. So you can't just say, if you want to see what teaching, the gift of teaching looks like, look for the result of teaching. Maybe, but sometimes the results may differ. And, uh, and so anyway, when you put all of that together, what it says is every one of us is so distinct that we can't be pigeonholed. Now, here's, here, here comes some of my thoughts to that. When you go to the bookstores or when you see the seminars, have you ever noticed that, that the way it works in those how-to things is that it, somebody has been apparently successful. Uh, we, could, we could talk about that word success, but let's not. But they are apparently successful in what they do, and other people want to have that same kind of success, and so they have pastor's conferences, and you go tell them, here's how I did it, and what do they do? They go home and try to do the same thing. They write books. Here's how I did it. And everybody buys the book and they go out and they try to imitate it. And here's my question. If every single person is unique, even within the realm of teaching, if every teacher is unique in what they do, then why is it that we are looking at that person as the model and the pattern and somehow if everybody else who has a a teaching gift did that, we'd have the same kind of success. That just flies in the face of Scripture to me. We have to be careful. And by the way, there is a text there that I wrote down, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 12. Comparing themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. Part of what that says to me is we need to be careful when we are looking to find our spiritual gift that we don't look at other people and say, well, is my gift, am I like so-and-so? If I am, then I must have their gift. I'm not sure that's true at all. We don't need to be looking at other people and comparing ourselves with other people and saying, how do we measure up to them? Because they're not the standard. The standard is our Lord Jesus and his provisions. Can we truly measure spiritual success? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 that he leaves evaluation to eternity. How do you know if spiritual results are what we are seeking in ministry, how do you assess those spiritual results? They may not be seen. Isn't that part of what being spiritual is? We have to be careful, not the benchmark, I think. 
and, and start talking about success prematurely. E, while spiritual gifts and ministry are unique for every believer, our gifts and our ministries are not to be autonomous. That is to say, every one of us, every one of you and myself is unique, and we have a unique individual role to play, but that doesn't mean that we're soloists. You know, we're not like going to a concert and the spotlight comes down on the stage and we get the solo spot on the stage. Spiritual gifts gives us a place in the choir. It's just that simple. Spiritual gifts gives us a place in the choir. And, and, and in that sense, soloists are not needed or desired. Only those who understand that God gives them a part a harmony part, whatever, and that the collective effect of that choir is what God is seeking, not the individual voice of one particular person. So we need to be very, very careful, I think, about that. Gifts are for the edification of others, 1 Corinthians 14, 26. And others are to be involved. Now, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, he talks about Timothy and the gift that is given with prophecy and the laying on of hands of the presbytery. I have to admit, I don't know all of what that means and how that applies today, but it does seem to me that you have to take into account, at least in Timothy's case, that other people were involved in the recognition and maybe even the passing on of a spiritual gift and so leadership, I, 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 I'm inclined to think that we as elders at Community Bible Chapel probably need to play a stronger role in helping identify and to encourage spiritual gifts. And others should be involved too. That means you, uh, fellow believers. We are to consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Surely that includes the exercise of your gift and finding the ministry that God has for you. Does it not? And, and, and that means being, I, I think, faithful to say to people, when you did this, it really ministered to my spirit in this way. Let people know the spiritual things that have come about in your life because of their ministry to you. That gives them feedback as to how God is using them. Sometimes it may involve sharing with people that what they think is their gift is not. And that's only being honest. But we ought to be encouraging one another with regard to our spiritual gifts. F, the ministries for which we are gifted are not that mystical or elusive. In other words, what God has called us to do is not some kind of a secret that he's playing a hide-and-seek with us regarding it's simply about obeying the Lord's commands. You see in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 16, the commands of how we are to care about and care for one another. I pulled in that text from, first, uh, from Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10 to say, if you want to boil it down to one command, then the command is love one another. If we sought to be obedient to Christ in loving one another, we would serve one another and we would minister to their needs. And that would, that would show us the place. Our place is to minister in an appropriate way that builds up people in their needs. 
You find your spiritual gifts by ministering to the needs of the moment. I picked up that one. It's talking about your speech in Ephesians 4.29. But it's basically saying that we are, with respect to our speech, we are to be looking about, sensing the needs of people, and our speech is to be designed, we are to speak to others in a way that edifies them in the context of the moment. Now, I know there's a, there's a italics there, and the original text doesn't have exactly those words, but it seems to me that's the essence. We ought to seek to do that. And if it is true of speech, it is true of all kinds of service, is it not? We ought to be ministering appropriately to other people. Now, here I just put three guys down in terms of uh, those who, uh, as in my, by my perception, these are not men who were, who were out agonizing about what is my spiritual gift. Here are people who are not even out agonizing about what has God called me to do. In a sense, what I'm saying to you is in most instances, God's going to bring the ministry to you, friends. You don't have to go around the church looking as though ministry is such a secret, elusive thing that it's just, you know, only a few are going to find it. It's just whacking you in the face. I mean, what does it take? I remember at Believer's Chapel, this is a little different way, but at Believer's Chapel we had this square that we sat in as we met. And, you know, you'd see a seminary student sitting... I hope mine are... <laughs> this would be terrible. I have those holes in my shoes. But, you know, if all of a sudden you look at a seminary student's shoe and you see a hole in it, does it take a Rhodes Scholar to figure out what you might be able to do to minister to them? You know, one of the neatest things that happened uh, by one of the uh, couples at Believer's Chapel was... And this, this fellow was working full-time and overtime as well as going full-time to seminary that year. He said to his wife, I want you to go out and buy every seminary wife at Believer's Chapel, and that wasn't a few, a new dress. Now, isn't that, a, isn't that an incredibly insightful thing to recognize that here are women who are sacrificing in so many ways and that this simple act of kindness could be a great encouragement not only to the woman but to her husband because it says God cares about me and my need. Well, anyway, here's Joseph. He's not ag- out agonizing. He gets drug off into slavery. But wherever he is, whether it's a Potiphar's servant in his household on his way up, whether it's a Potiphar's slave on his way down in the, in the basement uh, in, in prison, or whether he is the servant of Pharaoh, what is he doing? He is seeking to minister to others out of the strength that God provides. And notice that in his case... His ministry involves supernatural enablement, not just, uh, you know, just, just human efforts, but the sense, for instance, that something is going to happen to the baker and something else is going to happen to the butler, or explaining to Pharaoh what his dreams mean and how he ought to respond to that. David with Goliath. I don't think David went looking for a ministry. His dad said, take some food to your brothers. It was just that simple. But David was a man who understood about God, and when he saw Goliath blaspheming his God, he knew somebody had to act, and nobody else was doing it, and so he did it. He acted in the strength that God provided to minister. And that surely gave him a sense of what his gift of ministry was. And isn't that part of the reason why we look and say, no wonder David ought to be king. Look at him. He's a leader. Daniel were the kings that he served. We could go on and on, and I dare not. 
Spiritual gifts are both new and improved according to the scriptures. Here's where I come back to my New Year's thing. Every Sunday, we remember the Lord's Supper. And uh, we remember his incarnation in, in, the, uh, in the partaking of the bread. We think of his uh, sacrificial death and the shedding of his blood. But, you know, I do not hear very often, I do not hear very often people saying, we are celebrating the new covenant. And yet Luke chapter 22, I think it's verse 20, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in both of those instances, we read that when our Lord Jesus uh, celebrated uh, the Lord's Supper, he was commemorating the new covenant in his blood. And now think with me through the Old Testament. You know, you got, when you work through and you look like at the book of Judges and whatever, and you follow the history of Israel, man, it's just, I mean, they just one, there may be cycles, but it's just one big bummer, isn't it? And, and you're saying, hey, there, there isn't much hope, which was the whole point. God gave the law to Israel to show them they couldn't do it. And, and, and so what you begin to see is God speaking about even though there is nothing new under the sun, there is nothing new and improved that men may do. In Isaiah in particular, he begins to speak about his new work. And he describes his new work as a new creation, playing back on the old creation, and as a new exodus, playing off on the old exodus. And God is saying, I am going to do something radically new, Isaiah. Jeremiah and Ezekiel pick up on that, and they talk about the newness in terms of the new covenant that he is going to make. Not like that old covenant they were incapable of keeping, but a new covenant that would depend upon God and his working. It was a covenant that emphatically spoke about the work of of his spirit in the lives of men, which would change hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. And when our Lord Jesus Christ comes and people hear his teaching, they say, what is this? A new teaching with authority. Well, it was new because he came to bring about that which was new. That's why he says you can't put new wine into old wineskins. It is new. Now, we see the newness then with respect to salvation, the new birth. With respect to the church, where Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that he has now brought together the church which is one new man. And, and throughout the, the New Testament, you have to see the, 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 the church and in particularly Jewish believers coming to terms with the fact that there is this new entity that God is working through. Chapter 3 of Ephesians, Paul talks about that as a mystery that he has to reveal because it was not anticipated. The new covenant, and here, if I had time, I would, I would really land uh, uh, long and hard because I do not think that we take significantly enough the impact of the new covenant, not just as we celebrate the Lord's death, but as we see it radically changing the nature of ministry. The new covenant is God regenerating hearts, bringing men and women together, Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, into one body, the church. And through that church, empowered by His Spirit, they are to carry out the Great Commission. 
They are to proclaim the gospel and so that God would win souls to himself. They are to train and teach people so they will grow up and mature in their ministry. And if you would take time to study 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, you would see not only that Paul is saying this new covenant ministry is more glorious than the old. Remember what he says? When Moses went to see God, you know, his face was on a high beam. And then, and then he covered his face. And Paul says he didn't cover his face so they wouldn't see the glow. He covered his face so they wouldn't see the glow go. Because it was going to fade. And he says, we with unveiled faces behold the glory of God and reflect it. And it doesn't go away. And indeed, God is taking the veil of unbelief and lifting it in Jesus. And he says, this ministry gives us boldness. This ministry inspires what we do. It gives us perseverance in persecution. It gives us strength to carry on. That is the work that is the work of the Spirit through the new covenant. And so what I'm saying to you is when we talk about spiritual gifts, we need to understand spiritual gifts are far bigger than what we would have initially thought. Here's the person who's looking at spiritual gifts in Corinth who thinks, man, it's all about me and all about my gift and whether people can see me perform. And Paul says, it's not about you. Your gift is given so that you can minister to the body. And not only that, now Paul says, your gift is bigger than that. Your gift is to build up the church to go out, Ephesians chapter 4, so they can do the work of ministry. And, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, your gifts have been given to you as a part of the powerful working of God through His Spirit in a new covenant way to save people's lives and to change them. Now, that to me leads me to say we ought not to be wimpy in our expectations about what God is going to do. I, I find it very difficult in the light of 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 to say, well, spiritual gifts existed in the apostles' days, but they don't exist today. Is the new covenant over? No. And so, therefore, the, the Spirit works through gifts to implement the new covenant, to give weak vessels power. Yes, we are clay pots, Paul says, doesn't he? We have this treasure in clay vessels. That's the point. Clay pots don't do much but sit there. But God energizes us to do his work. Think about these two texts. John the Baptist. This just occurred to me because these are two problematic texts that I've always had. Matthew 11, verse 11. He talks about John the Baptist and his greatness. But he says, he who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What does that mean? What does that mean? He who is the least in the kingdom of God, John's great. He's the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. But when it comes to the New Testament, the new covenant, whoever is least is greater than John. I think what he's saying is those who are now living in the new covenant age, experiencing what God has purposed and what he is doing, including his work through the Spirit, they're greater than John because your ministry is greater than John's. It's new covenant ministry. Jesus says to his disciples in John 14, 12, uh, the works that I do, you will do also, and greater things. Hasn't that text bothered you? But when does the new covenant era begin? 
It begins with the coming of the Spirit, does it not? And so are we surprised in the book of Acts when we see all these marvelous, miraculous things happening? That's what God said would happen. So it seems to me that those two texts, which have been so difficult to understand, are essentially saying, when you move to the new covenant, you move to that which is new and improved. Really, really. So when we look at the new year, it doesn't matter whether the calendar rolls over or not. It's not going to change anything. You'll forget your resolutions in a week if you haven't forgotten them before you made them. That's not going to change anything. What is new is what God is doing. Changing hearts. I want to say to you, if anyone is here apart from faith in Jesus Christ, you don't need a new lease on life. You need new life. You need the old past to be wiped away. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He makes all things new. You want to have a new shot at life? Then you need Christ. That's what the gospel is about. Telling dead people, captured in their sins, that there is power and forgiveness and newness of life in Jesus. And you should trust in him. Father, we thank you for these texts, thank you for the spiritual gifts that you have bestowed upon us as a part of the new covenant. Help us to marvel in that which we are a part. I pray for any who might not know the Lord Jesus that you might convict them that what they need is something entirely new that only you can do, and that is salvation through the blood of our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.